As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Michelle Mijung Kim. Michelle is class of 2011 undergrad here at Haas, and she is just a force of nature. I've watched a couple of your videos, so, <laughs> and I, um, I'm about to download your book, so we definitely have to talk about those things. But first off, welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. Before we dive into your work and your life and your book, love to hear your origin story, you know, where you're from, where you grew up, how you grew up. Yeah. Uh, hi, everybody. It's nice to be here. My name is Michelle Mijang Kim. I use she, her pronouns. I was actually born and raised in South Korea, and I wow. moved to the States when I was 13, which a lot of people are surprised by because I don't have an accent, but there's a whole story behind that. I tried really, really, really hard to lose my accent. As soon as I came, people told me that I needed to pick a white sounding name. So hence Michelle and actually my Korean name, Mijang, I only recently reclaimed and started using publicly. So I appreciate you pronouncing it correctly, asking me if this is something that I wanted to use. And the answer is absolutely yes. And I immigrated here via San Diego. My dad was undocumented for over a decade and we grew up low income in San Diego. And when I was in high school, I came out as being queer bisexual, which was the beginning of my political activism journey. I was causing all kinds of good trouble in high school and college. I was often called into the principal's office in high school for organizing protests and such and such. And I decided to major in business because one white boy told me that I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so I was told that this was a really difficult major to get into. And when I started asking questions about it, he looked at me and said, oh, you'll never get in. It's too late. And that lit the fire up my butt. And I decided that I'm going to prove him wrong, which says a lot about me as a person, I think, this little story. So I ended up getting into Haas, and that really began my understanding around the world of business. I was still a very active organizer in college. I started my own student organization while on campus called Queer Straight Alliance, now called QSU, Queer Student Union. And, you know, I always thought that I was going to go into the world of activism full time or joining a nonprofit somehow. But I ended up doing a complete 180 after graduating from school and decided to pursue a career in management consulting. <laughs> and I did that because I needed money. I needed money to bring my mom over here because she was still living in South Korea. We were separated after I had immigrated to the States. And that was my first encounter with this world of corporate diversity and inclusion. I'm putting that in air quotes. And I remember feeling so disillusioned by the way that corporate America was talking about diversity and inclusion coming from the social justice space, from the grassroots activism space, and feeling like there was no real ties to social justice principles and the ways that people were talking about diversity and inclusion. It felt so diluted and whitewashed and often white-led that it felt really difficult for me to bring in all parts of what defined me as a person until then. And I struggled a lot with the culture, the hierarchical culture, the culture that taught me that I am too young, too inexperienced, too all of the things that don't fit into the standards of what they were looking for. And so I ended up not lasting very long in management consulting and decided to quit and I thought it would be much better for me to go into tech. <laughs> and the world of tech was a whole nother level of culture shock in a way that, you know, in the beginning, I, I had a lot of fun because it was so different than corporate America in terms of the casualness and how people were openly welcoming me to be myself. But mm -hmm. there were also so many layers of performative performativeness 
if you will, around how people were thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And unfortunately, after experiencing some really toxic incidents, I decided to leave tech altogether with a really good friend of mine. And we decided to start a company called Awaken that provides equity education to different organizations. Ran that for about four and a half years and got really, really, really burnt out. And I was struggling a lot with depression, anxiety, all the while the company was doing really, really well. And in the height of every company wanting equity education work after the murder of George Floyd and early in 2021, I decided to sunset the business as is and decided to write a book about my experiences both my lived experiences as a queer Korean American woman in this country, as well as the lessons learned that I got from working with so many organizations and leaders around their equity journey. And uh, that's what led me to be where I am today. Wow. I feel like, if you don't mind me asking, were there any formative experiences in your childhood or after you immigrated to the U.S. that made you, how do I say this, that really inspire you to become an activist? I think I was always, well, let me think about this. Cause I, I remember growing up in South Korea, I didn't have the language to talk about the experiences that I was having, but in retrospect, there were so many things that I was taught as a child from my grandpa uh, around the importance of activism. So my grandpa was a philosopher he was an educator and he was also an activist. I didn't really know much about that until I started inquiring about it with my family members and to my mom. But I remember him teaching me some of the lessons that now I understand to be around activism, where he really believed in many, many social justice issues that were important in Korea, like labor movements, organizing, organizing labor and women's rights. And even just the little things like you have to respect every single person that you meet, including a bus driver, make sure you thank them. And just, you know, talking about how important it is for us to understand where our food comes from and the hardships that farm workers face in Korea and the political, political corruption he was also, he talked a lot about political corruption and also the experiences that he and my grandma had growing up in a country that was once colonized. So they lived through Japanese occupation and colonization of Korea. And I think about all these nuggets of wisdom that I received from my grandpa, having had such a profound impact on me and my upbringing without even realizing it. And so when I came to this country and when I started learning about the history of this country's activism work, as well as the oppression that so many marginalized groups face, starting with being as a woman, learning about women's rights issues. And after I came out as queer, really understanding the impacts of homophobia, transphobia in this country. And also just, you know, experiencing bullying in school for not speaking English well, for looking different, and also just viscerally experiencing what it's like to be low income in this country. All those experiences really added to my being incredibly angry about the society that I was a part of that felt, that for me felt like a condition that I was constantly fighting within. So when I started understanding the kinds of work that other people were doing to change that, I became really inspired. And I was fortunate enough to meet so many other people who were organizing to create a better future, who were kind enough to teach me and help me learn the language, help me understand the theories that weren't being taught in schools even, right? For me to be able to understand and put language to the experience that I've lived that I know viscerally in my body, but didn't have the words to describe. So once I started learning the language, it felt incredibly liberating and empowering 
because now I can describe what it is that I'm experiencing. So I think those, all those small experiences led me to being the person that I am today and the way that I understand the world. Wow. Did you have any, what, were there any activists early on that you really looked up to? Yeah, so many. So, you know, when I was in high school, I ended up going to this queer youth camp <laughs> that was happening at UC Santa Barbara. I don't remember how I found how, how I found out about it. It happened once. <laughs> it happened once and I happened to be a part of that pilot cohort of young people who went to the camp and no one else was able to experience the magic that I did where I was invited to learn activism skills. And there were co just college students, just a few years older than me, who were teaching high school youth about how to organize on campus, knowing our rights, understanding, you know, even things like our own identities. Because I was just coming out and I was just trying to make sense of my identity because I thought I was straight my entire life. And I, my world turned upside down when I started having feelings for another woman. And so understanding my own identities and understanding how I can combat bullying in school and how we should be thinking about safe sex. So all the education that I wasn't getting from school, these young people who are only a few years older than me were able to teach me in a very you know, inclusive, welcoming and empowering setting. And some of those people are still doing activism work. So I remember folks like Kalyan Mendoza or Steph Lee. These are people who are still doing their, you know, incredible work in different corners of the world today. And of course, I read Audre Lorde, who's a Black lesbian feminist poet and writer whose book, Sister Outsider, really changed my life. And I also think about what it would have been like for me to have more access to a knowledge of Korean queer figures. Because I don't think that I, I don't remember when I was younger, knowing that many queer Asian people, period. Yeah. Right. So for me, meeting these a little bit older people who are Asian, so Kalyan is Filipino and Steph is Korean, was life changing. And I could understand that I don't have to do this alone that I had a community that I can rely on to support me and to make sense of this very chaotic time that I was living in and guide me through it. And I think I was really, really lucky to have found that. And I know not many people, uh, I know a lot of people are not that lucky in terms of navigating these times with other people. Well, your book called titled The Wake Up, Closing the Gap Between Good Intentions and Real Change you know, you talk about a couple of things that I had some questions about. I'll just kind of give a brief description in mind to, to our listeners. You know, as we become more aware of various social injustices in the world, many of us want to be part of the movement toward positive change. But sometimes our best intentions cause unintended harm and we fumble. We might feel afraid to say the wrong thing and feel guilt for not doing or knowing enough. Sometimes we might engage in performative allyship rather than thoughtful solidarity leaving those already marginalized, further burdened, and exhausted. My first question was, you know, what is kind of defined for us? What is performative allyship? What does that mean? Performative allyship to me is similar to virtue signaling when people are so quick to claim that they are in solidarity with certain movements or certain marginalized people uh, and groups that they are quick to claim that identity before actually having done the work or before they are actually committed to doing the work in a sustainable way. And a good example is a lot of companies that are quick to release public statements around their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. But when you peel back the layers, none of their leaders have actually done any of the work. So the experiences on the part of the marginalized people is one of cognitive dissonance where they see the public statements that are coming out, but their, ex their lived experiences inside these organizations don't live up to that promise. And so for me, that quick, urgent desire to claim that you're a good person, that you're an ally to a certain community can sometimes be the very barrier between you actually living the values that you want to live because you desiring to do something 
but without actually having sat with the necessary introspection can sometimes lead to unintended harm that could burden more marginalized people rather than being supportive or being seen as true solidarity. Right. I can think of some other examples like, you know, changing your profile picture to whatever, you know, the solidarity squares. Is. <laughs> yeah, the black squares or, you know, whatever it is. I guess for people listening, even for myself, right? What is a better way to approach this? Because in some ways, you know, you want to show support very quickly, right? You don't want to wait a month before showing support. But at the same time, you're absolutely right. It's not just a, all right, I changed my profile picture, you know, <laughs> I stand with you and nothing else changes, right? And my behavior and the way I think and, and how I educate myself or inform myself what's going on, you know, what, what are some suggestions? for people. Yeah, no, I always recommend, and in the book too, I write about the importance of starting within ourselves. So for me, when I title the work, The Wake Up, it wasn't just about us waking up to other people's struggles and the injustices that are around us in the world. It was also about our waking up to ourselves, our waking up to our capacity to change and transform but also our capacity to wake up to our complicity in some of the systems of oppression that we're so quick to denounce. So for me, what I want to see is all of us taking the work of self-transformation seriously, even before we claim that we are out there ready to march alongside other people. So starting with ourselves begins with our questioning the why. Why are we, why are we doing this work? Why do I feel compelled to be a part of the social justice movement? Why do I feel compelled to change my profile picture, to be a box square, to show solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement? And for me, the different whys that I've seen that people use from, you know, businesses using the business case. And I know that so many people who are probably tuning in are familiar with the business case where people say, if you have a diverse team, you're more likely to be profitable, you're more likely to be innovative, blah, 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 blah. That's a why that I feel has a very short lifespan. And I think that it's difficult for us to expect social justice outcomes with a why rooted in capitalism. And so I want us to be more critical about how we approach this work from the beginning. And I know that some people use the why of, well, we do this work because it's just the right thing to do. And I think that that's also sometimes not a sustainable why, because the right thing to do sounds good and it's it makes it a moral imperative, but it also can dwindle very easily as soon as you realize you have to give up something. Right. Like right for who? As soon as you realize that there is a cost. Yeah, exactly. And that there is uh, this distancing of yourself from the issue at hand, right? That this feels almost as charity work, right? That this is not something that I'm doing out of the goodness of my heart, you know, to support those who are less fortunate than me. It gives off that savior vibe where you position yourself as a moral savior who are coming to the rescue to help other people whenever you can. But you don't really see yourself as being a part of the problem and the solution. And by that, I mean the most sustaining why that I talk about in the book is the one in which we can see ourselves in it. So I don't want to see white people wanting to dismantle racism or white supremacy just because they have people of color friends in their lives. I want white people to understand that white supremacy isn't just killing people of color, it's also robbing them of their humanity. I want men to not want to dismantle misogyny or sexism or the patriarchy just because they have women in their lives that they care about. I also want men to want to do this because they understand that the same forces that are killing and hurting women in their lives are the same forces that are robbing men of their ability to be vulnerable, their ability to stay at home with their children, their ability to talk about mental health openly. So these issues aren't just about helping marginalized people. All of these issues are connected in such a way that if we don't dismantle all of them, they're eventually going to come for us too. So I think the why question is such a fundamental 
way for us to begin this work in a more authentic way that puts us on the map that sometimes we like to think of as totally unrelated to our lives. So I want more people to feel invested in this because it's about all of us. It's about reclaiming our humanity as much as it is about supporting those who are marginalized. And therefore that this work must be considered important and urgent for all of us. Yeah. Thank you. You are very coherent. <laughs> I, I just love how powerful, I mean, it sounds like you prepared for for like, a, have you done a TED talk yet? <laughs> Not yet. Maybe one day. You would be amazing for it. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> wow. That's, I think a lot of things you said there really touched me deeply because I've been having these feelings and trying to get, get a better understanding myself as to, you know, why is it that I care about these things, right? And how does it impact me? And, and it may sound selfish, but I think a lot of things, right? Just like it's always been said, you know, to love others, you have to first love yourself. And I think you're absolutely right because I think what our world lacks in terms of empathy is that people are not even empathetic towards themselves. Mm, yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Like enough. And because we're constantly distracted by social media, we're constantly outwardly drawn that, you know, there is no time or you know, we're not making enough time for ourselves. And, and I think if there's one good thing that, you know, that came out of the pandemic, of which I think there were a lot of things that actually came out of the pandemic that were good, it actually gave people some space to say, hey, take a look at yourself. Yes, take a look at the world, but first take a look at yourself. This whole topic around self-empathy and self-compassion, I think is such an important one that I want to put in, into the context of social justice work too, because sometimes we like to think of this work around self-care as very surface level, you know, we'll take a bubble bath, we'll go to a spa day, we'll take a day off and meditate, but we don't actually talk about the conditions that make us to need self-care over and over again. We are in the midst of so much heinous violence. We are processing so much collective trauma. And sometimes self-care alone isn't going to be able to heal us. And I want to create a world in which we don't have to experience the same type of trauma over and over and over again. And I also want us to practice what it looks like and what it feels like for us to prioritize ourselves in a world that doesn't want to see us do that, especially for people of color, especially for, you know, differently marginalized people, right? Whether you're a woman, whether you're a non-binary person, you're trans, queer, disabled, Muslim, and Sikh people who are constantly, all of the marginalized people who are constantly targeted by violence, but also who are constantly marginalized in different ways in our society. And we have to often, you know, we hear from people, especially in the black community, the saying is you have to, you have to be twice as good in order to get the same amount of respect and success that white people get. In a world that expects us to make ourselves expendable and disposable and overworked and tired and traumatized constantly, us prioritizing our care, our prioritizing our own mental health, physical health, our joy and centering our healing actually is a very revolutionary thing that I don't think we give enough credit for. So when we say, no, actually, no, I'm not going to go out and divulge all of my traumatic experiences only to educate white people who don't get it or with the hope of moving the movement forward, I'm going to exhaust myself to the bone. I think that we're actually doing exactly the opposite of what we are trying to solve for, which is a future where we are more free, more safe, and more joyful. And I want to urge all marginalized people to start claiming healing and joy and freedom now by prioritizing ourselves and not treating ourselves and our happiness, our fullness, our wholeness as being disposable, right? These are not, this is, if our well-being, if our wholeness is the cost of our liberation movement, then that cost is already too high. 
And that's counter to the work that we're trying to do. So I take that work, I'm starting to take that work a lot more seriously. I didn't for a very long time. I thought that I needed to do more all the time in order to move our conversations forward, in order to educate people who are well-intentioned. And I saw myself as being almost a martyr, right? And that I needed to exhaust myself and work myself to the ground to be able to say that I've done something for the community. But what I didn't realize was that I was making myself expendable in the name of the movement. And that was counter to my philosophy and my politics. Right. I think relatedly, um, it's a perfect segue into what I wanted to bring up because you watched this talk that you did recently and it kind of woke me up a bit in many ways because you had, I'll just kind of quote what you said. You said, you know, in corporate America, a lot of times people are, consultants are hired in or brought in to coach women how to be more confident, right? When that's not really the issue is how do we teach people in positions of power, you know, how to stop doubting women, right? And I was like, these are the things, I mean, these are the kinds of examples that really shine lights like on what it is that people in positions of privilege and power can do that really are impactful, that aren't threatening to their identity. I think sometimes when, it, when, when we talk about these things, people feel like, well, I have to give in or something. And it's like, you, don't, you can just act differently, right? You can act more respectfully. And anyway, I, I wanted to, to let you hear you talk about that a little bit more and give us more examples. Yes. And I love that that resonated because what I'm trying to shift away from is putting the onus of surviving onto already marginalized people. And rather than teaching people how to survive, I'm trying to create change in the conditions and impact those who have direct control over how our systems are shaped and how our conditions are shaped. And I want us to move away from overburning already marginalized people, having to do more work to navigate these treacherous social patterns that are built to oppress versus how do we focus our target on the systems and people who are in positions of power, who are creating the conditions that people have to tread through. And so, you know, I'm reacting to what what you're saying about sometimes it could feel really threatening to those in positions of power to here are some of the demands that people have in order to create more equitable and just societies. And while I understand sometimes that could be a difficult predicament, I also want to challenge people to sit with the discomfort and to sit with why it is that um, being asked to give up something that you have might feel like something that you just aren't able to do. Right. right. Or, or that or that you're losing something. Yes. And, and I think tying it to what you were saying earlier, it, it just I think what woke me up was is just we haven't seen a broader perspective as how this change can benefit us. Yeah. Right. Right. And I think, you know, the losing something part is interesting because I do talk about this in the book where we will all have to at some point be willing to give up something in order to move the movement forward, whether it is our resources, our positions of power, our privilege. And I think that's the, that's the tension because sometimes we want to think of this work as just happy go lucky. Everybody gets together, solidarity, love and rainbows and glitters. Right. (laughs) But that's because our current systems and our current society is built to exploit rooted in the power imbalance in order to correct that, there will be some trade-offs that we all have to make. And to be more concrete, I'm talking about, you know, for an organization, if they truly want to prioritize equity and justice and access, I've had to have difficult conversations with executives around, are you willing to slow down? in order for you to create a more accessible product that has been tested for accessibility? Or are you willing to put more 
money towards recruiting in places that you haven't recruited from? Are you willing to forego quick referral hiring candidates who have been vetted by your current employees in order for you to build a more diverse pipeline and for you to have more equitable access to your company's opportunities? Right. These are not easy trade-offs, especially for fast-growing tech companies that I often work with. And these are explicit conversations that we actually have to have. I mean, at a nonprofit, we had a very tough conversation around the companies, the organization's willingness to admit that they've made some mistakes in the past around layoffs that predominantly impacted Black women. But admitting that would have gotten them into more legal risk of being sued because they have just admitted wrongdoing, racial, race-based discrimination. But every employee understands that that's what happened and they're asking for accountability by the way of acknowledging what happened. So when it comes to actually doing the things that are in alignment with our set values, what are we actually willing to trade off, right? At the individual level, we see all the time people wanting to solve the issue of homelessness. And yet when the bill comes to build homeless shelters and accessible housing in their neighborhoods, most people will vote no, not in my neighborhood, because that's going to drive my housing price down, right? So when it comes to doing this work, there will be some trade-offs that we have to be honest about making, or when we're not ready to or willing to make those trade-offs, then let's be honest about why and interrogate where that fear is coming from. And they could be very valid reasons, right? Like I talked very um, openly about in the book, and this was a really hard thing to do, when I bought my first house, I decided to go with this bank that is doing horrible things to their workers and who has a very bad track record of treating social justice issues as complete a non-priority issue. And I decided to go with that bank because they gave me the best rate. And I felt disgusted with myself. But what I had to remember was what the work that I needed to do afterwards was why, why even knowing these things, was I unable to make that trade-off? And in the future, if I'm asked to make these decisions, what would enable me to stay more in alignment with my said values and not feel like a hypocrite? And how do I reconcile these contradictions that I'm living in all the time? And for me, it was around my deep-seated money trauma, having lived through multiple bankruptcy that my dad experienced in his lifetime and having you know, having had something one day and then all of that being ripped away from me the next day, all of those things impacts how I work with money. And so when I was going through this very, you know, confusing process, that is the home buying experience. And I was presented with this opportunity. I couldn't say no. And I I hated myself for it. So these are some real decisions, right? Real trade-offs and sacrifices sometimes that we are needing to make in order to stay in alignment with our values. We're not shooting for perfection, but we are trying to be honest throughout this process. So I don't ask people to ever be perfect in their decision-making because I'm certainly not. And I live in contradictions all the time. But in these moments of contradictions, can we be courageous enough to be honest with ourselves and be willing to do the work in order for us to be closer in alignment with our values every single day? Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being so brutally honest because it reminds me that, yes, you know, we all live in contradictions, but if anything, we need to bring more awareness to these contradictions. And like you say, you know, put more thought into it, put more introspection and, and try to figure out what we can do about it versus just brushing on the rug and saying, well, that happened, right? Right. <laughs> and, and not thinking twice about it. This is something that I talk about. I'm starting to talk about more because I feel the fear that people have, especially white men in positions of power have around diversity, equity and inclusion work. And you already touched on it, the sense of loss right? The, the fear of losing something that they have, fear of losing the position and the power and the privilege that they have. And then that's a real thing that I want to acknowledge. And I think what is what needs to be challenged is the belief that what they have 
all of the things that they have were even theirs to begin with. That we live in a society that has blanketly accepted the fact that the power and the privilege and the resources are already belonging to one group of people and that they have internalized those resources and in a way that makes them believe that that was all of theirs to begin with. And therefore, if that gets shared, it gets registered as a loss rather than an equitable redistribution. That reminds me of another conversation I was having around diversity, equity, inclusion, which is that, you know, there's also, especially I think with people in power, people in privilege, including myself, I should be very honest. As humans, we have this tendency to go towards what's easy, what's convenient, right? And over time, because of these conveniences, you get into this fixed pie mindset, right? And that's also, in my opinion, a, a root of the problem because it's not a fixed pie, clearly. I mean, when we can win together, we can create more, right? And, and it's not just for the sake of creating more. I'm not talking about materialism. I'm, I'm saying create more love, create more harmony, create more just peace, right? And it's only when we think it's a fixed pie that we start, you know, fighting each other, killing each other for things that are, frankly, you know, not fixed. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I I think that the world that we live in that's so steeped in capitalism, white supremacy, all these really violent forces have manufactured this sense of artificial scarcity. And I see this even in my work when it comes to talking about certain issues that are impacting certain communities, right? I hear a lot of fear around there not being enough attention spreading across all the different issues that people are feeling like we are constantly moving from one trauma to another, that we're not actually able to allow space for all of us to be acknowledged for our pain and for us to be able to grieve. And in the world where everything moves so quickly and everything is instantaneous and then everybody moves on from whatever the trending topic was, I think it's so easy for us to feel that way. I think it's so easy for us to say that, no, there isn't enough space for us to be able to grieve this one. Now we have to move on to this topic and then that topic, that topic. But that's not how grief works, right? That's not how we are able to heal. So in some ways, I think that scarcity mindset goes even beyond the materialistic things that we're talking about, to your point, to something that feels a lot more human in terms of the emotions that we have to experience with time. And I also feel that sometimes there is this misconception around how talking about one community's issue means that we can't talk about another community's issue simultaneously. So I saw this a lot during the Black Lives Matter movement when anti-Asian violence was steadily rising. And it was really difficult for a lot of people to hold both things at the same time. And to be able to link those two movements together. So when I started talking about the importance of fighting anti-Blackness inside the Asian community, I got a lot of messages. Some were supportive, but some were also voicing concern. Some people said, how could you be talking about Black Lives Matter when our people are dying? Right? How about us? What about our pain? And I felt so much sadness reading those comments because... I understand where that's coming from, because in this country, the particular flavor of oppression that a lot of Asian people face has been one of erasure, where our pain gets invalidated, trivialized, minimized, and just straight up ignored. So I understand the fear around, yet again, we're going to experience erasure. And what also dawned on me was that people didn't see my fighting against anti-Blackness as being related to our issue, which was also deeply saddening. Because when I show up for Black Lives Matter, it's not, again, it's not just because I care about the Black people in my life. It's also because I understand that the source of anti-Black racism is white supremacy. That's the same force that's killing our people too. 
So when I show up for the black community, I'm actually actively and consciously fighting for my people. And I wish that more people were drawing these explicit connections between different movements that we have shared roots of oppression that when we show up for one community, it doesn't mean that we leave our other communities behind, but that we're actively having to have these conversations to help connect the dots, to see that all of our struggles are actually connected and that there is no one singular fight that we are fighting. Because when we talk about Asian issues, that includes people like me who are women, who are queer. So by fighting Asian issues, you're also having to reckon with misogyny, patriarchy, transphobia, queerphobia, homophobia, right? So I wish that more people could think of these issues as all being connected and intertwined, that we, we don't live these siloed lives, right? These siloed, compartmentalized struggles. And this is a quote that I remember from Audre Lorde, who says, there is no such thing as a single issue struggle because no one lives single issue lives. I have a question that um, I've been waiting to ask someone like you, (laughs) (laughs) who might be able to help me understand this better. I think that the goal, right, for humanity is for us to not see colors, right? Different skin colors. And, and it's, it's weird to say that. Correct me if I'm wrong. What I mean by that is, you know, is to recognize each other's uniqueness, but also recognize our shared humanity, right? That, you know, we're all skeleton underneath right? <laughs> our skin, the same structure. How do we engage in race discussions, you know, and fight oppression without excluding, making people feel excluded? Say, for example, you know, plenty of my white friends or people that I know, you know, they're good people. They are allies, right? And yes, they are sometimes or many times complicit, right, in, you know, what's going on. But how do we not make them feel excluded? Like this is a war against white people, right? Like colored people against white people, which, you know, (laughs) it's, that's not the case, right? It's, how do we think about that? Yeah. How do you think about that? So your comment about the goal being ultimately, how do we not see color? How do we not differentiate our experiences based on color? I I think that if we could get to a place where our skin color, our race has nothing to do with our ability to live safely and with the same opportunities as everybody else, then I think perhaps we could get to a place where we don't have to talk about race. But the truth of the matter is race still plays such a key role in determining somebody's ability to live with safety and freedom and access to opportunities in this country and in the world that it has to become a part of the conversation. So now then how do we have these conversations without alienating certain groups of people, especially when it comes to racism, white people, and when we're talking about sexism, men, and people who hold privileges, right? And I think that the way that, one, we talk about these isms and people who may be well-intentioned but who are susceptible to causing harm, we are so quick to use binary thinking that robs all of us of the opportunity to be in the complexity together. Meaning we as a society has been trained to think of people as either good or bad. You're either a good person or you're a bad person. You're either a racist or you're not. You're either sexist or you're not. And because of those binary categories, it becomes so incredibly difficult for us to admit when we've actually done harm and when we've caused a mistake. And it becomes really scary because we know, as a society, we know what happens to those bad people, right? We shame them. We excommunicate them. We banish them. We literally disappear them. If we decide that somebody is a criminal, we disappear them into prisons. That's how we are growing up, believing that bad people must be disappeared. And all of us who are not bad people are good people. And we have to do everything in our power to not be seen as one of those bad people. So when we are receiving feedback that we have 
mistakenly caused harm or we have unintentionally harmed someone, it's so hard for us to accept it because that must mean that we are part of the bad people list. And so I want us to get out of the mindset that there is some type of profile that shows these are the racists and these are not. Because at any moment, we could be engaging in behaviors that are considered racist, right? So even though I say I am an ally to the disability community, when I post something on Instagram without also providing alt text, which is like an image description, text-based image description for people who are blind, if I don't provide that, then in that moment, I am not practicing allyship. In that moment, I'm actually, my behavior is ableist. So how can we sit with that discomfort of knowing that we are not one-dimensionally good or bad, but that we're just human beings capable of any actions that could be beneficial or harmful to communities that we are looking to be in solidarity with? So it's not about excluding anyone from these conversations, but that we all, every single person needs to practice accountability because we want to be a part of the conversation, right? And I think there's also a degree of, you know, and I hate this word, I, I love this word, but I hate this word because it comes with a lot of connotations, fragility, that I think we need to reckon with. And I'll use myself as an example. So it's easy for me to think of my, life as a series of overcoming different challenges, right? I'm a queer person. I'm a woman of color. I'm an immigrant to this country. I grew up low income and look at all the challenges that I've overcome to get to where I am today versus thinking about the other side of my story that I call hidden stories that I have not lived, but are still part of my narrative. Meaning, I remember when I was called a dyke on the street. I remember that day very clearly. I remember the stares that I received when I was holding a woman's hand on the street or kissing her. But you know what I ever don't ever have to remember because I didn't live it is ever being in fear of never making it to the date because I thought a cop was going to pull over and shoot me. Because I'm not a black person, I don't experience anti-black racism. Or when I go through the TSA checkpoint, I don't ever have to worry about being misgendered and being patted down by a man because my gender identity is congruent with the sex that I was assigned at birth. And because of my gender expression, no one ever thinks of me as other than the identity that I identify as, which is a woman. So these are the experiences that I've not lived that have also influenced my life without me knowing And these are my privileges that I hold. That doesn't mean that I didn't struggle with all of these other parts of my identity, but it does mean that I didn't have to struggle in a particular way that other people have had to. So we have the capacity to hold these multiple truths at the same time and to see for our, see our lives with this clear honesty so that we can actually practice accountability when without realizing our privileges have been weaponized to harm other people or that we've been benefiting from systems of oppression that have been harming other people. So I want more people who may feel this movement is just trying to exclude me to actually calm down their defenses and start to listen to what is actually being said. Because it's not that we want to exclude anyone It's more that we all need to be very honest about what it is that we're trying to create so that we can all live in a world where no matter who you are, what your identities are, you are seen as being worthy of respect, love, joy, and freedom. And it's as simple as that. So if we can all agree that that's a true statement that we all believe in, then we all have a role to play in making that happen in our own little corners of the world. And I also think that there's this misunderstanding around the term white supremacy being seen as, you know, people talking about white people, like dismantling white supremacy means dismantling white people, but those are not the same things. When I talk about white supremacy, I mean this very dictionary definition of white supremacy is one that believes, is this myth 
that believes that white people, whiteness as a race is superior to all other races and therefore white people should have dominance over people of color. And that myth could sure show up in the most extreme violent case like the KKK and the Nazis, but it's also in the small details that we live every single day. Like when people told me that I need to adopt an English name um, or a white sounding name when I came to this country, because there is a very research preference around English sounding names over ethnic sounding names when it comes to job hunting and people giving you the respect that you deserve, right? Or when people told me that I need to lose my accent in order to succeed. These are smaller examples of white supremacy culture in which whiteness is being preferred and seen as superior to all other racial characteristics. So that's when I say dismantle white supremacy, it's not saying all white people get out of my way. It's questioning how every single one of us, including people of color, have ingested the messages of white supremacy in such a way that we are continuing to uphold this myth over and over again. My last question is around cancel culture, kind of looking at the other side, right? Looking at the other side and by the other side, I mean the other extreme in some ways of saying, because we don't want to so quickly label people when they make a mistake, to your point, right? We want people to be able to reflect and, and change and improve and do better every day, not be perfect, right? How do we reconcile that? <laughs> yes. Oh, goodness. I did unpack cancel culture in the book, so I'll be brief. Cancel culture, I feel, has become synonymous with people on social media taking down somebody for the most innocuous mistakes. And I want us to be clear about how we're using that term. Because for me, canceling someone, I would rather call it a public boycott that people engage in in order to de-platform or remove power from people or institutions that have been abusing their power for a very long time without any accountability. So when it comes to people who have been causing harm and who've been abusing their power to cause harm onto marginalized people over and over and over again, over the course of multiple years with no accountability, and that the only way that has been effective to create any semblance of accountability is public boycott. That to me is very different than my friend inadvertently using a different, an insensitive word while telling a story and causing a one-time mistake that causes harm. Those are two very different contexts. And I want us to be more discerning about yeah. how we are viewing these situations as different. So let's not equate those two scenarios and say cancel culture is categorically bad, right? Because I think people on the people who are most afraid of practicing any level of accountability has done a fantastic job of sensationalizing this concept of cancel culture to a point where we are not able to distinguish between when public boycotting is necessary versus when that becomes too blunt of a tool for us to call each other in when we are trying to practice accountability in an interpersonal setting with people who are causing, you know, who are making mistakes in a way that's not the same as abuse over the course of a long time. So I think that discernment is important. And I also believe that in order for us to practice this non-binary culture of shaming and writing people off as bad or good, we need to be able to practice what it looks like for us to repair harm and to practice accountability, starting with ourselves. I think we talk so much about calling other people out and holding other people accountable, but what I'm more interested in is creating a culture where I want to practice accountability because this is what I care about. I want to live in alignment with my values. So before anyone calls me out, I'm going to call myself out yeah. and I'm going to do my part to repair the harm that I've caused. So instead of being so preoccupied with the, you know, sensationalized version of cancel culture, what can I do today to practice accountability starting with myself? And how does that ripple out to creating a culture where we don't have to wait for other people 
to call us out on things because we are practicing living our lives in a way that is in alignment with our values and we are the people that we say we want to be. Thank you for sharing that. That is very powerful. Yeah, I, I love having these conversations because they just remind me to do better every day. That's, you know, that's what I, um, what's easy for me to remember, right? Every time I interact with my wife and we're expecting a, a baby girl soon, uh, soon my daughter, right? You know, I, I want the world to be more inclusive, more equitable for my daughter, right? For everyone's daughters, for all women. And, and it's crazy because I, I grew up, you know, not that long ago, right? Two decades ago in a culture where it was not very inclusive, right? And I, I grew up in Michigan too. And, you know, the things we used to grew up, I laugh with my wife all the time. I just am reminded the things that we, we used to say or joke about without thinking twice, right? Has such a huge impact, not just on other people, on harming other people, but actually harming ourselves. Because without that awareness, that you're actually causing harm, you're actually hurting yourself too. And I, I can't find the words to describe it. I think you would, you would be a lot more eloquent about it. But what I mean by that is it'll affect my relationship with my wife, for example, in the long term, right? If I'm not treating her with respect by talking um, badly about other women, or it's actually, it, it reflects my own actions towards her. That's things that I find. And just even recently, you know, she's pregnant things like she feels a certain way. And, and I've been uh, taught, you know, slowly that those are her feelings, right? I, I can't refute them. Right? Like I shouldn't refute them. Like <laughs> I have feelings too. And nobody, I don't want anybody to refute my feelings, right? Like Sean, you shouldn't feel that way. Well, I felt it, you know? Right. And I'm really starting to recognize that and respect that because that actually initially made me feel like, oh, if I don't refute it, if I don't like you know, change her mind about it actually makes everything worse. It's like, no, when, I, when we don't let people feel what they feel and like, be true to themselves, that actually um, makes things worse, right? Because in many ways, I think we have lost a trust in each other's abilities to do the things that you say we can do that we're all capable of, right? And in that way, losing trust in our fellow you know, human beings, we, we're in essence losing trust in humanity, in our own humanity. So, mm, so well said. Thank you for sharing everything that you've shared. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Well, okay. So on this last notes, we'll definitely include a link to the book. Is there anything else you want? I mean, I don't, we don't want to obviously give the whole book away, right? <laughs> because I, <laughs> I want people to read it. I'm going to go actually is it on Audible, by the way? Yes, Perfect. it's on Audible. And I actually narrated the book. Oh, I'm excited. I had to audition for it. <laughs> I, I auditioned for it and they said I'm good enough to read my own book. So it's in my voice. I'm so excited. I'm, I'm a big reader, but ever since having a kid, I live on Audible. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I enjoy audiobooks yeah. a lot. And to have it be narrated by you... I just found it. Here it is. I'm buying it right now. Amazing. All right. So we'll put a link in the episode for everyone. I really hope that we have another opportunity to speak again and talk more about yeah. this. Were there any parting thoughts you wanted to give to our audience or our listeners? You know, I've been saying this a lot because we live in such a trying time. I'm reminded of the fortune cookie that I got when I was in consulting that I held on to. It, so shout out to Panda Express, inspiring the masses. <laughs> the fortune cookies fortune said, don't give in to cynicism. And that was, I received that message at a time when I felt incredibly jaded about the kinds of possible change that I could expect to see in my lifetime. And I felt like everybody thought that I was being so naive and so idealistic about the kind of change that I wanted to see in the workplace. And I think holding onto hope is such a powerful and courageous thing for us to do. And to remember that change is indeed possible. And it's not only possible, but that it's happening every single day all around us. And I think of Mariam Kaba, Black abolitionist, somebody who I really admire and look up to and learn from. 
her quote is hope is a discipline. And that's the thought that I want to leave folks with, because I think we need a lot of hope these days. And to remember that a better world, a more just, inclusive, safe, equitable world is possible and that it is being built right now by so many people with the same vision. So don't lose hope. Don't give into cynicism. Claim the corner of your life and the world that you're in charge of and make that your front line where you do the work to create change that you want to see. And yourself, right? First. And yourself first. Yeah. Yep. I love that. I really love that. That makes me feel personally empowered versus keep on looking at other people's like, why, why aren't you doing, why aren't you changing yet? Right. It's like, that's well, right. Let me, let me work on me. Let me, let's all lead by example. So. Yes. Thank you so much, Michelle, for being the leader. It was a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears. Go Bears.